Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them to the Gospel of John in chapter number 4. John chapter number 4. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you. You could take that Bible and turn to page 74 in the back part, and you would be at John chapter 4. Now, as we launch our message today, we're actually going to begin by viewing a scene from the 1997 movie Titanic. You remember the story, right? It goes back to 1912. You had the Titanic. It was unsinkable. And yet, at 18 minutes past midnight on April the 12th, the Titanic is gashed by an iceberg, and it slides into a dark, watery grave in the North Atlantic. And you may remember that there were 2,200 people on the Titanic, but only 700 of them survived. Among the lifeboats that were there, there were 20 of them. Many of them were half full. So you had people in the water perishing who could have been rescued, yet they weren't. So I want you to watch this scene, and, and after we watch this scene, I'm going to ask you a question. Check the screen. If we go back, they'll swamp the boat. They'll pull us right down, I'm telling you. Knock it off. You're scaring me. Come on, girls. Grab an oar. Let's go. Are you out of your mind? We're in the middle of the North Atlantic. You know, uh, one of the things I find very interesting about that movie is that it has so many large, very realistic scenes in it. But I find something else interesting about the movie is I think there's some parallels between us as followers of Jesus Christ and that movie. Because as those who know the Lord as our Savior, 
we realize that people around us are perishing, people around us are dying. And when we trust in the work of Jesus Christ, we end up being in a lifeboat that rescues us, and that lifeboat is named Jesus. And God has granted to us the privilege of being involved in helping to spiritually rescue people. Now, I want you to think about the scene that we just watched. And if you could just summarize it into one word, why were those in the boats hesitant to rescue people? Why did they hold back? If you could just think of one word that would summarize it, what would that word be? Fear. Exactly. Fear held them back. You know, the heart of the Heavenly Father is to seek those who are lost, and he invites us to join him in that process. But let's just be honest, we're often hesitant, and we're really hesitant because of fear. Maybe it's a fear that we're just inadequate, we really don't know what to do, we don't really know what to say, and so we hold back. Maybe we, we fear rejection, we think if we get into a discussion about spiritual issues and talk about Jesus maybe, your God, that we might lose that relationship. Maybe it's a fear that if we get involved, we, we might mess up, we might make a mistake. Or maybe we just fear that we're not really ready, we lack the knowledge, we lack the ability. So we just hang back. We've just launched a new series that we have entitled FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions About Christianity. And as we do this series on FAQ, there is a big banner that is over the top of it, and that big banner is the idea of evangelism. And evangelism is a very interesting thing because a lot of times as believers, when that subject matter comes up, we, we tense up just a little bit. And I believe that evangelism is a bipolar term. You know, when someone is bipolar, they swing very quickly from being elated to being sad and then back again. And evangelism is a bipolar term. It both excites us and it also intimidates us. I mean, we can be very thrilled about the joy of seeing someone who's lost found. But at the same time, we can be intimidated. We're unsure. How am I really supposed to do this? How am I realistically going to pull this off? This is a bipolar response. There's a yes, let's go for it. And a, I'm not so sure. This feels pretty overwhelming to me. How am I going to pull this off, this evangelism thing, on a daily basis? The series entitled FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions, the actual first question we're going to look at comes in two Sundays on September the 8th. These first three messages are really setting the context for the series. And last week, Pastor Mark talked about one, how everyone is valuable to the Heavenly Father and how he seeks the lost. That's why Jesus came to this planet. He came, as he said, to seek and to save that which was lost. And he invites us to join him in that process. Today, what we want to look at are two core 
principles. And they are principles that I believe are very comforting. They're principles that are very encouraging to us. And here's what I believe about these two core principles. I believe that when we embrace them, it will dispel much of our fear. I believe that when we embrace these two core principles, it will deflate most of our feelings of inadequacy. And I just want you to relax so you know that the goal today is not to pummel anybody with guilt. The goal is to stimulate our involvement in the rescue process, to jump in rather than holding back. So let's take a look at these two core principles. And here's the first core principle, and that is evangelism is a process. Evangelism is a process. See, part of the fear that we have is we have this sense that it all rests on me. But the reality is that's not true. In John chapter 4, what's happening there in John chapter 4 is that Jesus has been sharing some truth with a Samaritan woman. And part of the reason why he was doing that is he was setting an example for the disciples, and he wanted the disciples to understand something about the process. And so in verse 34 of chapter 4, Jesus says this to them. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He came to seek and to save, to rescue that which was lost. And in verse 35, he says this, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? I mean, that's a saying in the agrarian society. He he says this to them. This is really the punchline. Behold, men, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white for harvest. Verse 36, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that, here's what's interesting about the process, he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, verse 37, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. He's saying evangelism is a process. It involves more than one person. And he says, in this process, some sow, some reap, but everyone gets to be part of the joy of the harvest. You know that major decisions in life are the result of multiple, many decisions. Major decisions in life are the result of multiple, many decisions. For example, one of the most major decisions someone can make in their life is where would they go to college? And that is a big decision, and I can remember having to make that decision, and I considered it to be a big decision. But major decisions really are the result of multiple, many decisions. And so I'll just take you through the process of the way this worked with me. I moved from the Kansas City area where I spent my secondary school years to the state of New Jersey, halfway through my junior year of high school. 
Now, I had lived in New Jersey before during my primary school years, but that's where we moved. And so I have to make a decision, where am I going to go to college? So I made a mini decision, and that mini decision was I preferred to live and go to school in the middle part of the United States. Now, another mini decision I made is that I wanted to go to the University of Kansas because a lot of my high school friends were going to go to the University of Kansas. That's where I wanted to be. Well, then the University of Kansas made a mini decision. You see, what happened is my high school in New Jersey failed to get my transcript to the University of Kansas by the application deadline, and so they threw me out of consideration. Another mini decision I made is I was interested in possibly coming to the University of Oklahoma. We had friends who lived in Norman. I had visited Norman. Well, then I found out the University of Oklahoma required the ACT achievement test. I had only taken the SAT achievement test. And so I decided in a mini decision, I'm not going to go back and restudy for a whole new format and everything else. I'll just stick with the SAT. So that eliminated OU. One of the things I wanted to do was to go to a college that had an outstanding journalism school because my big dream was to be a radio disc jockey. So I wanted to go to a journalism school. And as a series of many decisions went on, it actually came down to two opportunities, either the University of Nebraska or the University of Texas, and I had never been to either place. Again, another mini decision came in, and that how did I choose between those two? I finally chose the University of Nebraska because it was closer geographically to what had been my former hometown in the Kansas City area. But it's rather frightening to think about that I came very close to being stuck with wearing burnt orange the rest of my life. And that would have been difficult. But major decisions, you see, in life are the result of multiple many decisions. For example, another major decision is to say I do to someone in marriage. But saying I do, that major decision is really the result of multiple many decisions. It was true again for my wife and I, my wife Janet. We said I do. But there were multiple many decisions that went into that. Um, we went to the University of Nebraska at exactly the same time. So it's our freshman year in September. And I had made a mini decision that I wanted to find a long-term girlfriend. It was a big priority with me. And I lived in, a, in, a, in an, uh, a dormitory called Abel Hall. I lived on the 10th floor. And someone who was running our social program made a mini decision that Abel Hall 10th floor would invite Janet's sorority pledge class to our floor for a dance. Those girls are there. I made another mini decision. I was, I like the looks of this girl named Janet. So I made a decision to ask her to dance. Then I made another mini decision. I would like to ask her out on a date. And we went out on a date. I was interested, in my mind, of having another mini decision of a second date. But somebody else made a mini decision, which was my wife, to be, and she had made the decision that she was going to date multiple boys. And so she was booked out three weeks in advance. 
And so when I kept getting turned down, how about here, how about here, how about here, I made the mini decision, I think I'll just pass on that deal. And then um, midway through my freshman year, I made another mini decision in my life, and, and that was I decided to take this girlfriend thing and put it way on the back burner and to take my spiritual life and make it my central concern. I wanted to really grow in the things of God. And so I began to do that. And uh, what's really interesting about that is I did not see her after that first date at all. Now you go forward a whole year to September of our sophomore year, and the very first week of school, I ran into her on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday in different places all over campus. I hadn't seen her for a year. So I had a mini decision to make. What am I going to do about this? And I really wasn't interested in her as a girlfriend potentially, but I thought, you know, this is too providential. This doesn't happen on such a big campus. Maybe God is saying you need to speak with her and share the gospel with her. So I made the decision to call her back up again to say, let's go out on a date. And that was my goal. Now, it took me a few dates to get up the courage. But finally, I got the courage to do that. And we were sitting in the parking lot behind Abel Hall when I shared the gospel message with her. And to my incredible surprise, really, she said, yes, I would like to pray. I would like Jesus Christ to be my Savior. And then I had another decision to make because I know that when you lead somebody to Christ, you can't just leave them there. You have to disciple them, you know, so here, that's what I decided to do. I made another mini decision. I will go ahead and disciple her. I'm not really interested in her as a girlfriend, per se. But then we spent more time together, and we, we became friends. And, and I became attracted to her as a person. And then we made some decisions, many decisions to date, and we dated for two years, and eventually we said, I do. But you see how this works? Major decisions in life are really the result of multiple mini decisions. And you say, why did you go through all of that? That's interesting. But, well, the same thing is true when it comes to someone trusting Christ as Savior. That's the most major decision you can make in life. But it is the result of multiple, many decisions that go on. It has been said that on average, it takes 30 individuals to bring one person to Christ. 30 followers of Christ to bring one person to Christ. Now, that's on average. It may be less than that. Or it may be more than that. But think about that. It's saying that 30 people on average sowed into someone's life before they trust in Christ. They, well, what were they, what were they sowing? Well, maybe they just sowed a perspective about a follower of Jesus. You know, that followers of Jesus aren't weirdos. They're regular people. They're, they're normal people, but they're people who have somebody else in their life. Maybe the sowing is just sowing an act of love or care to someone, and they think, wow, what makes them so different that they would do that for me? Maybe it's sowing an attitude of displaying joy in Christ even when things aren't going well, and someone begins to think, I wonder why they're so different. I wish I could be like that when life gets tough. Maybe it's sowing um, the idea of an awareness of who this Jesus guy is, sowing some information about why Jesus came to the planet, 
Maybe it's sowing a verse or some biblical truth into their life. You know, that's what happened uh, with my buddy Jim, who was my closest friend in college and in graduate school. And Jim was a guy who was very deep into reincarnation. And he, he spouted this all of the time, and he began to intersect with some members of the Navigators. And different individuals would, would sow things into Jim's life. And one day, he was really waxing eloquent about reincarnation, and one of the guys said to him, Jim, you know, that's very interesting, but the Bible says this in Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed to men to die once, and then comes the judgment. Just sowing into his life. And several other individuals sowed into his life till eventually someone sowed the whole gospel message into his life and he responded to it. It's been said that the average person hears the gospel five to ten times from different sources before they trust Christ. Now, it may be less or maybe more than that, but that's the average person hears the gospel delineated five to ten times from different people before they believe. You know, that was true of my wife, Janet. I found out later that some people from Crew, Campus Crusade, the part of that previous year had laid the whole gospel message out for her. Now, she didn't respond by really trusting in that, but she'd heard it before. The same thing is true of me. You know, I trusted in Christ as my rescuer from sin and judgment when I was 11 years old in the Kansas City area. Willard and Margaret Grant came and presented a children's program to our church there in Kansas City, and they laid out the gospel message. And I can still remember the emotion of me wrestling with all of that and going home, and I'm on my bed in my bedroom when I just made that life choice to place all my trust in what Jesus Christ had done for me. But I found out that I'd actually had the gospel explained to me before when I was nine years old and in New Jersey. But what's interesting about that is I didn't remember that. I was young. But something very interesting happened. There was an individual, in, in, uh, actually from Wildwood, who went to a garage sale in, here in Norman, Oklahoma, and they said, we were at this garage sale, and we picked up this little gospel of John. It was, it was part of what was being sold there. And it mentions a guy by the name of Bruce Hess from New Jersey. So we were wondering if this could be you. And I don't even remember ever seeing this thing before. But I pick it up, and in the back, there is my name. Bruce Hess, Nine Marinas Place, Glen Rock, New Jersey. That's where I lived when I was nine years old. And um, the date is November 27, 1960. And it mentions Romans 10.9, John 20.31. Then it says, you know, my decision, believing that Christ died for me and rose again and will save to the uttermost all who come to God by him, I now receive him as my personal Savior and confess him as my Lord and Master. And I'm sure what happened, someone gave me this, uh, explained the gospel to, to me and said, well, if you want, you can just sign the back. And I probably just signed it as a nine-year-old, but didn't really understand it. But you see, someone had shared the gospel with me before I actually responded 
in trust and faith in it. Evangelism, men and women, is a process, and there are multiple people involved in the process. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6. We have it up on the screen for you. Uh, what's happening here in Corinth is people were getting in little groups, you know. Well, I'm part of Peter's group. I'm part of Apollos' group. No, I'm in Paul's group. And Paul writes to them, and he says this. He says, who is Apollos and who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts. Apollos watered it. It was a process. There were multiple people involved. Now, here's what's interesting about evangelism. We often get fixated on the reaping, the actual moment that someone trusts Christ as their Savior. And there's usually only one person present at that point of the harvest. But think about the average person who has 30 people so into their life. And when you just get fixated on the reaping point, you have 29 people on average who have a sense that they did nothing in the process and one person who thinks they did everything in the process. And the reality is that God uses multiple people, and it's a series of many decisions that people make before they say, I do to Jesus. Now, I want you to look under your seat, and there's a handout there that is one of the most exciting handouts that I have ever seen. It's called One Step Closer, a four-phase process of evangelism, and it's put together by a guy by the name of Jim Peterson. Jim Peterson's one of the leading experts on evangelism in our generation, and he's done evangelistic things transculturally. So this works everywhere because this is the way God works in the evangelism process. And we're not gonna spend a time looking at every element of this, but I do want you to notice at the top there, by phase, it mentions four phases. First, you have the cultivation phase, then you have the sowing phase, then you have the harvesting phase, and eventually after someone trusts Christ, you have the multiplication phase. Notice on the emphasis line there, in the cultivation phase, the emphasis is on the presence of the believer, building a friendship bridge. In the sowing phase, the emphasis is on the presentation of the gospel, giving uh, an understanding of truth. This is where you're sowing things into them. Then you have the harvesting phase where the emphasis is on persuasion, encouraging a meaningful decision of faith. And then after someone trusts Christ, uh, you have their integration into the body. What I really want you to notice that to me is so encouraging is this bottom part where it says many decisions. And these are some of the specific many decisions that could be made in each phase. And you'll notice that there's a star at really ground zero where someone becomes a new creature in Christ when they trust in Christ. But I want you to notice there's 12 potential mini steps that might be taken before that. So I've turned mine sideways so it's easy to see this. Notice at negative 12, someone is going his or her own way. 
And then at negative 11, they become aware of the messenger. That's the follower of Jesus. Then at, at the next step closer, number negative 10, they have a positive attitude towards the messenger. Next step closer, negative 9, they're aware of a difference in the messenger. Negative 8, they're first aware of the Bible's relevance to life. Next step closer, negative 7, they have a positive attitude towards the Bible. A negative 6, aware of the basics of the gospel. Negative five, they understand the meaning and the implications of the gospel. Uh, Negative four, they have a positive attitude towards the gospel. Negative three, they recognize their personal need. Number negative two, they decide to act. Negative one, they repent and believe, and then they become a new creature in Christ as they are forgiven. Now, here's what I find so encouraging about this. We can all do this. You can do this with the people that you work with. You can do this with your roommates. You can do this with your friends. You can do this with your neighbors. You're simply thinking about how can I, this is really exciting, bring them one step closer. I'm not sure where God may use me in the whole process, but I can be involved. All of us can be involved in bringing someone one step closer. So the first core principle is that evangelism is a process. Now there's a second principle that is so, so important, and that is this. God is responsible for the results. God is responsible for the results. Remember, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but what's the key phrase that comes next? But God was causing the results. See, men and women, we can't change hearts. We can't penetrate hearts, but God can do that. So it says, then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but here's the key phrase, God who causes the growth. Here's what I I think. One big reason why we are reluctant to interact with those who are lost, why we're reluctant to share our faith, is because we have a fear of failure. Why do we have a fear of failure? Because somehow we think we are responsible, and I don't want to muck it up. But God is responsible for the results. Acts chapter 11, verses 20 and 21, Luke says... There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And notice this key phrase, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord, because God is responsible for the results. I can't change hearts. If you have your Bible, turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, and we want to look at verses 12 to 14. Now, what's happening in Acts chapter 16 is God, through the Spirit, is calling Paul to go into Europe. And what we're going to see is the preaching of the gospel by Paul for the very first time in Europe. And so they come in verse 12 of Acts 16 to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And Luke says, we were staying in this city for some days. 
Look at verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. It was very common then for places of prayer to be near the water. And he says, we sat down and we began speaking to the women who had assembled. Verse 14, and there was a woman named Lydia, and Lydia was from the city of Thyatira. Now, Thyatira was a very heavy Gentile area. And it says that this woman was a seller of purple fabrics. That tells us purple fabrics were bought by the wealthy. And so Lydia was a very successful businesswoman, and she obviously traveled around a lot selling these products to the wealthy. And it goes on to describe her in verse 14 as a worshiper of God. Literally, in the original language, it says that she was a God-fearer. Now, that is a technical term for a Gentile who was investigating the Jewish religion. In our vernacular today, we would say she was a church attender. And she was listening to the things spoken by Paul. What were the things spoken by Paul? Well, we learn that from the end of verse 10. He was there to preach the gospel message. But here's the key phrase. The Lord opened her heart to believe. He opened her heart to respond. God is the one who's responsible for the results. And the evidence that she responded to the salvation message of the Lord Jesus is that in verse 15, we see she is baptized and her whole household is baptized. God is the one who's responsible for the results. I cannot change people's hearts, nor can you. Responsibility of the results not on me. It's not on you. It's on God. Curious, it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Can I get through to a blind person? Spiritually blinded person? No, but God can. Only God changes hearts. And we are tools in his hand. He wants us involved in the process. But he is the one who is responsible to open eyes. He is the one who is responsible to open hearts. He is the one who is responsible to change lives. Our calling, your calling and mine, is to be part of the process, to engage with people, to share the good news with people, to bring people closer to Christ, to bring them one step closer, to connect him to the Savior. It's God's work to reveal the truth of the gospel message to them. It's God's work to cause life change and to cause growth. Those two principles are so, so important. But here's what I find exciting about it all. We can all be involved in this process. It's motivational to me to think about the person that I, the people that I live near, maybe work with, go to school with. How can I bring that person one step closer to Christ? 
You think about the people that are around you, and you can use this, this little chart here and begin to think about, I wonder where they are in their many decisions that they're making. And how can I bring them one step closer to understanding who Christ is? And I find this exciting. This is really, really exciting for us men and women, how God wants to use us. And, and the results are not on our shoulders, ultimately. God is the one who's responsible for the results. And you know what part of the thrill of all this is? We don't really understand how God's using us. We really don't. You know, when we're sowing into people's lives on various levels and various planes, when we share a verse of Scripture with somebody, we don't really know how God's going to use it. And God may use it to make a difference in their life, and then they turn around and make a difference in this person's life, who turns around and makes a difference in this person's life, and so forth. And eventually, we can actually influence people we've never even met. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? I want you to see an illustration of how this works. Check the screen. This is Nate. Nate became a Christ follower two weeks ago and is still a bit giddy about it. Now he's trying not to do cartwheels in public. Nate became a believer partly because of Kim. Yet, oddly enough, Kim and Nate have never met. How is this possible? Well, let's take a look. Kim loved Jesus from an early age, and in college she had a huge impact on her friends. While most of her peers used their college years to, well, experiment, Kim didn't. She remained committed to her faith, and it showed. It especially showed to Lisa, her roommate, who confessed to Kim that she wanted whatever it was that made Kim so strong. Kim shared her faith with Lisa, and Lisa believed. Years later, at Lisa's first real job, she met Thomas. Thomas was hit by a drunk driver when he was 13 and still carried a lot of anger and bitterness. Thomas and Lisa became friends, and it wasn't long before he started going to church with Lisa and her husband. After a lot of studying and searching, Thomas gave his life to Christ. Fast forward a few years. Thomas became a public speaker and was often asked to speak at large events. See, when he became a believer, Thomas developed a new perspective on life. He stopped resenting what had been taken from him and started being thankful for the second chance he had been given. On one particular day, Thomas shared about overcoming hardship and what it means to choose joy. He was so passionate that a number of people were inspired to share a link to his video. The video of Thomas inspired James, too. And if anyone needed inspiration, it was him. James had a ton of issues. He spent most of his life as a passive husband, an absent father, and a horrible friend. That said, no one disliked him more than he disliked himself. But everything changed the night he happened to watch Thomas online. Something clicked and he knew what he had to do. He surrendered his miserable life to someone greater, and he was forever changed. James fought hard to make up for the lost years with his family. And he also began working with young men who were in danger of throwing their lives away. One of those men was Nate. Nate didn't really know his own dad, and he had no real direction in life, ultimately bouncing from one bad decision to another. Because of that, he often found himself in trouble with the law. No one had ever showed him what it looked like to be a real man. That is, until he met James. James became the first father figure Nate ever had. 
He learned about honesty, self-control, humility, and integrity, and where those traits come from. Two months later, Nate publicly declared his belief in Christ. And of course, James was there. Now you can see the connection. Nate was impacted by James, who was influenced by Thomas. Thomas saw an uncommon joy in Lisa, who learned of Jesus from Kim. Kim's relationship with God eventually led to Nate's. Funny how these two people have never met and never will. Every time I see that, it just emotionally moves me. You know, he said, they never met and never will until heaven one day. And part of the reason why we, we feel passionate about this for all of us, we want you to be involved in part of the thrill of seeing God use you in ways that we'll never really know about until we get to heaven. It's an exciting thing to be involved in the process. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much just that we can spend some time thinking through these things. And, and help us, Father, to really get a grip on this idea that Evangelism is a process, and you want to use each one of us to help bring people one step closer to Christ. And what a liberating thing it is to remember that God is responsible for the results. What we do is make ourselves available to be part of this whole process. And Father, may we not become victimized by fear. May we step out believing that you want to use us to influence other people. May we boldly sow our relationship and our words and our truth into those around us for the honor and glory of the one who bled and died. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.